Big Swinging Stocks acknowledges the traditional custodians of Australia's lands, skies and waterways and pays respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Hello and welcome back to Big Swinging Stocks. This week, we're joining you with the first of a two-part series with ex-Fidelity Fund Manager and my favourite climate activist, Kate Howard. This is part one of our series where we're talking all about the six ways to save the world, including with mining. In this part, we'll discuss if it's possible to individually solve climate change and why Kate recommends everyone go into engineering to save the world. And in part two, we'll go into the technical details of investing for climate change and whether your super fund can help supercharge the battle against climate change. Please welcome Kate Howard to the show. Hello, Kate. Hello. You know, this is one of my favorite topics. Oh, we could talk about this for days, but tell me, you mentioned the decarbonization challenge last episode and we were sort of getting into the nitty gritty about how businesses are responding, but what is the challenge and what are businesses doing? Okay. So the challenge is we have a ton of economic activity that goes on in the world. And for the past hundred years or so, it's all been fueled by energy and massive step up in energy. And that's mostly come from fossil fuels and they carry with it carbon. (laughs) So now we've got to find ways to do all the stuff we love to do, like take trips in airplanes to foreign destinations and heat our homes and build lots of skyscrapers. We've got to find a way to do all of that without the carbon. So the direct electricity, we've got to greenify the grid. So instead of burning coal, we've got to move to renewables and batteries, but then we've got to expand the grid. We've got to make the grid like that electricity generation. Mm. That's got to become like four or five times bigger because we've got to electrify a bunch of other stuff. We've got a transport is a really huge one. It's not just cars and everyone buying EVs. And if you can afford an EV, kind of morally, that's what you're going to be buying these (laughs) days. Also, shipping is a massive generator of carbon and trucking, the other big part of transportation. Then there's our food production. So, you know, people have, most people by now have heard about burping and farting cows, and that's a big source of methane. So we're going to either cut out beef and dairy or find ways to take the methane out. And interestingly, mm-hmm. there are emerging yes, ways to Yes, the seaweed, the algae research, yeah. Interestingly, a lot of people are starting to kind of say, well, I'm going to cut out meat, I'm going to go vegan for environmental reasons. A mm-hmm. lot of people don't know that rice, rice cultivation is a huge methane emitter that's kind of crazy because you don't think that when oh. you have a nori role that you might be contributing to yeah. climate change. We the And it's not the rice inherently, it's the way it's cultivated. And so we're going to change the way we cultivate it. And so that's another big change. And then fertilizer, a lot of fertilizer production actually comes from natural gas. Did you know? I did a lot not of the know. Fertilizer, yeah, there's three big forms of fertilizer and one of them has to is currently made from natural gas. And so we've got to find a way to change that, right? So you've got to fix food. And then there's some just big tricky bits of the economy. Cement, the most widely used construction material in the world, mm. inherently comes with a lot of carbon. It's just calcium carbonate is what you make it from. So when you turn it into cement, then you release all this carbon dioxide. Steel, very similar, iron ore comes with oxygen, you know, an iron oxide format. To release that, we burn coal and oxygenate it, and it also kind of inherently releases CO2. And then air travel, you know, really hard kerosene, jet fuel. is mm. really high energy to weight ratio. So yeah. it's just the perfect fuel for that. 
and batteries are not really going to do the job. And so it's a really tricky problem there to solve sustainable mm. aviation fuel so that we can all continue to do the kind of tourism that we want to do to kind of, you know, lift up the economies of, of other places around the world. And we're not going to do all of that fast mm. enough. So we're going to have to also do direct air capture which is where we create machines that will suck the carbon dioxide out of the air and then do something with it. You either turn it in the limestone or you put it back into the caverns that the oil and the gas came out of. So we've had a Holy reservoir moly. that's had oil and gas. Yeah, This is actually not new. So Santos, which is a listed Australian company, mm. was the South Australia Northern Territory oil service business. So they came out of the Cooper Basin. Uh, in South Australia, and that gas just happens to come with a lot of CO2. So before you could kind of put it into the pipelines, you had to strip off the CO2. And then what are you going to do? They would stick it back under, underground to increase the pressure so they could get more gas out. So they're already doing this, right? They've just mm -hmm. got to now capture it out of the atmosphere. And they've got like huge reservoirs. And every oil and gas company around the world that's been pulling all of this oil and gas out, they've got these reservoirs. So it's the expense of pumping it back underground and making sure it stays under there. But we're going to have to do a lot of this as I was listening to something today and it's oh, what is it? something outrageous, like 5 billion tonnes of CO2. And when you think about a tonne of a gas, like a tonne of a gas, Mom. right, volumetrically, that's a lot. Yeah. So, you know, a couple of billion tonnes of CO2 every year we need to be sucking out and putting somewhere. So well, all of that, the price tag for all of that? Yeah. 100 trillion US, more or less, give or take, maybe 150 between now Spare and kind of 2050, 2060. Now, like oh. most people kind of, you know, get kind of wonky when you get up to the yeah. trillions. Like what is a trillion dollars? So in US, and this is US dollar terms, so the Australian economy, so everything that we do in Australia economically each year, every coffee that we buy, every wage that we pay, every company result that comes out, we aggregate all that up to our GDP, that mm -hmm. is about $2 trillion a year. So imagine you take the Australian economy and everything that we did for the next 50 years, we stopped buying coffee, we stopped going to work, we stopped doing anything except decarbonizing, and that's kind of the scale of it. Or the US economy is about $21 trillion. So imagine the US puts everything down and all they do is decarbonize is like five years of all of the US economic activity. Now, obviously, you know, like <laughs> we have to keep buying coffees. That's obvious. Um, so this has got to be laid on, on top of yeah. most of what we're doing normally, yeah. which actually means it's a huge growth driver. If we get mm. the urgency of this and get the investment going, There's which so goes back to the conversation we had last time about careers of the future, mm. you know, electrician, electrical engineering, mining engineering, you know, that $100 trillion is going to go to building a lot of stuff and all of that stuff is going to be built by individuals doing their job. So there's a, an enormous economic boom coming out of this. So huge boom, enormous challenge. Some people may say this almost feels like Sisyphus, like there's so much to do to get the ball rolling. But you've spent quite a lot of time with these C-suite executives talking about this issue. What's the tone of conversation at that level? Yeah, it's fascinating. So I had about 20 years as a professional investor and the way we would do that is, you know, we'd read the annual reports and we'd crunch the numbers, but we'd also sit down with CEOs and with chairmen, chief financial officers, and we'd talk to them about their plans. Mm. And I have to say that about five years ago, I reckon there was a noticeable shift 
So for years and years, we would have these conversations and all we would talk about is profit maximization. How are you mm. going to grow your value? How are you going to build your earnings? How much of a dividend are you going to pay out to shareholders? And there was a little bit around that about, do you have good governance? Make sure you don't have any scandals that are going to come to light and have costly fines and make the share price fall. But it was all still primarily in this lens of the share price and the value. Yeah. And then we've actually had a big shift where we started to push more about ESG, which is environmental, social and governance concerns, and especially on the environmental side and especially on the decarbonisation mm. side. And the biggest push has come from investors in Europe. Europe is kind of at the forefront mm. of environmentalism yeah. and decarbonisation, and there are some massive asset owners and pension funds in Europe, and they started putting this stuff first. And so it's kind of percolated throughout the investment world now. And so as part of that, we were kind of putting these questions to Australian companies and saying, well, what you know, you have a very big carbon footprint. What are you going to do about that? Mm. And for a long time, there was kind of stonewalling. And then, you know, it was like there was a, a shift and they all started to go, yeah, actually, we do have to do that. They heard it from enough investors all the time of, well, if there are two companies out there, if you're both going to create value, but one's also going to halve their carbon footprint and one's not, well, then we'll invest at the one that's halving the carbon footprint. And so the conversation became more multidimensional. And they started to respond to that. And going back to Santos, right? So Santos had been just this old school oil and gas company. All we do is oil and gas. And Santos still, you know, get a, a kind of bad name for trying to do some new commercialization of some yeah. oil and gas projects. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people feel it's too late in the day. We can't be doing anything new. And there's actually room for some debate on that. But What's also happening is they are looking very aggressively at their carbon footprint and they figured out that they are sitting on a gold mine in terms of those open reservoirs in the Cooper Basin. Yeah. And so they are one of the two leading companies in the world now looking to scale up uh, that direct air capture because wow. they realize like they're sitting in the Cooper Basin. So to do that direct air capture is going to require electricity. So they're in the middle of nowhere. They can mm. put out massive wind farms or solar farms. Ideal They've got the location. space, right? They're yeah. not an offshore, like if you're an offshore reservoir, a bit trickier to do some of that stuff. Whereas yeah. they're sitting, you know, in the middle of kind of, you know, northern South Australia, there's not a mountain out there. To your point around economic opportunity, there's like layers to that. So they do the direct air capture. Presumably they turn the project into a carbon offset. You could potentially buy credits in the product. Like, it's like limitless. Yeah. Then they sell those out to other companies who don't have that ability. Yeah. They have a whole income stream, a revenue stream from assets, which let's be real, these empty reservoirs were probably zero generate. Exactly. Now, as a little bit of reality check, the first time I remember talking to Santos about that opportunity was about 12 years ago. And the world wasn't ready for it. Then the world didn't care about it. It wasn't worth them putting any capital to try to develop that idea. There were no direct air capture machines. Solar panels were really expensive. Wind was really expensive, you know. So they knew about this for a very long time, but the economics didn't stack up. There wasn't that demand for it. Whereas now here we are, you know, time's moved on. Solar panels are cheaper. Demand for carbon credits is a lot higher. Direct air capture machines are coming on stream. That's something that they're pushing a lot harder now. So they're a company that they're going to turn from being a brown company, a dirty brown company, where currently every dollar of revenue they make comes from selling carbon. Ugh. 
and they're going to push that into the future. So, you know, the, the mistake that we all make about business is to think it's static. And the fundamental nature of business is that it is always dynamic and always changing. And companies that just, you know, are static and just do one thing and think they're always going to do that, they don't last very long. And so business leaders, good business leaders know this, even good business leaders of very brown, dirty companies know that they want their company to have a future in 10, 20, 30 years, and they've got to start putting that in place now. And so if you look at the big miners, they used to own large thermal coal operations. Our large miners have now got rid of those. They're now focusing, particularly BHP, are focusing more on what they call the future-facing commodities, which are the commodities that are going to be really at the heart of this. Things like nickel, copper, they haven't moved into lithium, but that's a big one, rare earths, those sorts of things. You know, I've been watching these companies for so long that you can see their strategies evolve and they really have evolved to see the $100 trillion and what's going to be part of that. Of that $100 trillion, about $5 trillion, at least, is going to be increased steel production because you need stainless steel, right? Like every solar panel comes on a stainless steel frame, every wind farm, every um, transmission grid has this big thing. It's all steel, steel, steel everywhere you look. And steel is made from iron ore and West Australia is basically a big chunk of iron ore. So we are the largest you know, iron ore exporting country in the world. And that is going to continue to be, it used to be that most of our iron ore, well, probably today still most of our exported iron ore goes into development in China. China has been our largest importer of that for all the steel they're doing in their, all of their high-rise buildings. And so there was a lot of thinking that would taper off. But, you know, with $5 trillion of demand for steel, then there is a huge amount of that that still has to come through. So, you know, the great news for Australia is that this $100 trillion of spend plays right into our economy. You know, we're having the last laugh, you know, there's all, the, all of the mining and the basic commodities that we produce are going to be very well sought after for the next several decades. So you've seen a real shift in companies responding to this, but have you also seen the recalcitrant businesses that, just have no plan for this or the plan is actually to wind down there's a little bit of that so because of this pressure coming through listed markets what mm. you see is that the dirtier assets are getting sold and being bought by private equity so there's now then private equity are getting their own pressure put on them so the big listed you know the big global private equity firms are also kind of becoming quite green themselves, but it's smaller pockets of cash. But if you look in Australia, there's a really large listed thermal coal producer, and that's a kind of sunset industry. It's an industry that we really, you know, shouldn't be, it shouldn't exist in another decade or two, and it trades cheaply. So for that coal company, that board has a choice. Looking ahead, they can either put that business into runoff and it can go to zero, or they can diversify away into, you know, copper or lithium or something that is actually going to have some future in the decades to come, and they'll respond to that. So a lot of these businesses are actually just the dirtier bits are going into runoff or they're finding cleaner ways of doing them, and certainly they're getting a lot less investment than they had in the past. Yeah. We've talked quite a bit about companies directly involved in this decarbonisation, but let's switch 
focus a little bit to our adjacent financial sector. Let's talk about banks and super because you mentioned pension funds. What's been the response from Australia's $3 trillion superannuation industry? Look, the fortunate thing is that our large asset owners have also come to the party. I think partly it's like anything, right? There's leaders in your sector and you want to be with the leaders, right? So when the largest European pension funds go this direction, then the Australian ones go, yeah, maybe we should be doing that too. Yeah, So good on them, right? And some more than others. You know, there are some that are really making a push to make sure that everything they do is sustainable. But look, Mm -hmm. one of them was sued by a young member a couple of years ago for not taking climate change into account. Now, I reckon that galvanized some minds and made them think. And it has changed the way they're thinking about this. So they, you know, collectively, they are the largest owners of Australian listed companies. They sit down with companies, the firm that I work for, you know, they might listen to us a little bit, but they really listen to Australian super and the really big super funds because they own a lot of their shares. So they're also being part of the solution on this. Mm. And they've also realized that it resonates with their members and, you know, not surprisingly, especially their younger members. And so they should, right? Because younger members who are just starting out with superannuation now, their investment is going to go through that whole period. So, you know, not going to get into drawdown to maybe the 2060s. And the super funds are going to have a duty of care to that member for all of those decades to come. And that's one thing I think... There's a little bit of an issue here, which I call fiduciary failure. It's kind of in the category of market failure. You know, market failure is when markets don't actually get you an efficient outcome the way they usually do. Fiduciary Mm -hmm. failure is when putting in place fiduciary structures, which is just you're an agent and you have a duty of care, when that fiduciary structure doesn't work. So, for example, a couple of years ago, the government introduced something called Your Future, Your Super. And the intent was really good, which was if a super fund is not performing well, let's make sure it can't take on new members. But because they defined the timescale as eight years, which sounds long, but isn't really in the scheme of things, if you Mm. underperformed over an eight-year period, the risk of not being able to take on new member money was so huge that it kind of means that the super funds have to kind of shorten their view to that eight-year period. So you've got this mismatch where you've got these huge nation-building projects that need to be funded, the trillion dollars. You know, Australia is kind of 2% of everything in the world. So let's just say we've got to do $2 trillion out of that $100 trillion. You've got these super funds that have billions of dollars of long-term money that's not actually going to need to be drawn down until the 2040s, 2050s, 2060s. They want these long date of returns. They know returns will be better if the Australian economy does well and if the Australian economy decarbonizes. They want to take a long-term view. And then they've got this silly rule that says you just got to look at an eight-year period and you can't deviate Mm. from that. And now, look, the wonderful thing about Australia is we are small enough that when you get stupid outcomes like that, people get together in a room and they hash it out and they'll fix it, right? So the government has already announced that they're looking at that rule, that they like the intent Mm. of it, but they want to change the specifics of it. So so that kind of, we're working through that already. But you have to kind of iron out those things so that, you know, the long-term asset owners can actually take a long-term investment horizon. Especially as you say, some of these projects take 12 years to become rational. Yeah, it wasn't necessarily the right time for Santos to invest. And 
everything had to line up. Things had to get cheaper. There are, you know, the market had to change. Like them announcing that 12 years ago probably would have been lead balloon yeah. kind of situation. Yeah. Like, what yeah. do you want to do? What? Yeah. But now it's a completely different market. And around the economic opportunities, superannuation funds are kind of in the unique opportunity, the unique position of being able to take that nation building infrastructure investment unfettered by some of the political discourse that's happened because they can nest, like they could apply completely you know the almost the Macquarie Bank view of the world like we don't care if this is good we care if this makes money that sort of approach and get those projects funded when it doesn't really matter whether the government of the day supports or doesn't support climate change, yeah. they're going to invest. And the backdrop is, you know, Australia is fortunate in that we have far less political polarisation than the US does. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, Europe does too. You know, like it's tough in the US that, you know, these issues get polarised. But fortunately, Europe is pushing ahead. We're now pushing ahead. And, mm-hmm. you know, you really did get to the point, you know, a year or two ago in Australia where the argument wasn't over whether we should tackle climate change. It was just kind of the mechanism and how you should do it. And that was a big moment for Australia. Mm -hmm. And so now, you know, we're much more in implementation phase. That's been really helpful. Companies have wanted that certainty. They've really needed that kind of certainty to be able to to move forward. There's other things government can do. The emissions, car emission standards that they're putting in, you wouldn't think that's important, but it really is. Had a huge impact on the reduction of emissions in the late 90s and early 2000s. Some of the most effective regulation that we've ever seen, actually. Like there was a, there's a fantastic regulatory assessment of like good regulation to your point around sometimes regulation doesn't get the outcomes it wants, but car emission standards, phenomenal. Hydrofluorocarbons, we talked about that in the last episode, another really effective form. But I want to talk about the last elephant in the room, what are banks doing, Kate? Oh, okay. Now, look, now banks are on the right side of this now. Mm-hmm. So now. their job, well, you know, <laughs> as with every company. They've crossed the line. They're in the business of lending money, putting it to work, and getting a return on it. And increasingly, you're just getting to where lending to a thermal coal project doesn't make sense because it's going to become a sunset industry. Now, we should mm. just take a little time out and talk about coal and the two types of coal. Mm-hmm. I think every person should understand the two types of coal. Lead on McKay. Okay. So coal, the dark black stuff you dig up out of the ground and Australia the digs one that up Scotty a lot of it, brought right? to Parliament. Yep, that's right. And it was it was the bedrock of the Industrial Revolution, right? Coal fired steam engines and railroads. Like that was the start of industrialization, right? Coal has done enormously wonderful things for the human race. And now half of it we're gonna leave behind, right? So Coal comes in two forms, oversimplifying terribly. There's black coal, uh, there's thermal coal and met coal. Mm-hmm. So thermal coal and there's also brown coal, which is an even worse form of thermal coal that was burned in Victoria. That stuff is bad, 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 no redeeming features, and we should stop using it as soon as we can. Now, the only caveat to that is even within that thermal coal, there are mm. better and worse forms that carry slightly more and less carbon. And Australia's coal is better than like Indonesian coal. So there's kind of an argument that some coal will be burned. It might as well be our cleaner coal than Indonesia's dirty coal, but it's kind of at the margin. We just should all aim to reduce our thermal, thermal coal, coal use 
as much as we can. Now, yeah. the challenge there is that China has been powering its rise through increasing electricity generation, and the big Very driver of that has been rolling out tons and tons and tons of coal-fired power plants. Now, mm. they've also, over the last couple of years, been doing tons and tons and tons of renewables. So they're onto this. They've made their own net zero by 2060 commitment. And so they yeah. will, but you should see, like, their usage of coal goes way up and it's going to have to come way down. Now, mm. we have been a big exporter of that. We've been probably the largest exporter of that coal to China. And so as it goes up, it's going to come down. It's a sunset industry. We've got to stop that. But there is yeah. the other type of coal. The other type of coal is metallurgical coal. And any geologists out there would take issue. It's all kind of coal, but the calorific value is a lot higher. So it's like super, super premium coal. That's different. The reason it's different is because currently we use metallurgical coal to make steel. So mm. you take your iron you ore, escape you put it into steel. a blast furnace with mm -hmm. the coal to heat it to these enormously high temperatures and then you run it off. Now, that process, both the burning of the coal and then the CO2 that gets released, all aspects of that are incredibly carbon intensive. But we've got this massive chicken and egg problem, which is to spend the $100 trillion requires $5 trillion worth of steel which requires, I don't know, but it's a lot of yeah. thermal coal. So right now, it's a kind of situation like you're the farmer and you really want to eat your corn, but you've got to sow your seed so you've got corn next year. Like you kind of got to like sow that seed. So we don't really want to burn that metallurgical coal, but the other alternative is to wait and say, I'm not going to do that $5 trillion worth of steel until I can do it using hydrogen based on solar and wind and electrolyzers and, you know, kind of fancy technologies that people are working on, but they're not proven up yet. Mm. And then when I've, when I've got that scaled up, like I've changed the whole global steel industry over to green steel, then I'll produce $5 trillion worth of steel and then I'll do the rest of the $100 trillion. Like we don't have time to do that. We just yeah. don't have time. So in the scheme of things, you know, we don't have time to wait to have green steel. We need $5 trillion worth of steel. We need it now. And the only way we can produce it at scale is by burning it with metallurgical coal. And so mm. we will not get to net zero if we don't keep producing metallurgical coal. Is coal good? Is coal bad? You've really got to break it down. Thermal coal, bad, 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 bad. Metallurgical coal, met coal necessary evil for now we really want to grow out of it but we can't stop it now if we stop it now it's going to be impossible to get to net zero and it's really important because like i say queensland produces the best metallurgical coal in the world and produces mm. a lot of it and so it's very easy to get very upset about queensland coal mines Queensland coal, for the most part, is metallurgical coal, necessary evil. New South Wales coal, for the most part, is thermal coal, bad, bad, bad. Victorian mm -hmm. coal, for the most part, is brown coal, even worse, terrible, 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 you know, and, and is being shut down very, very quickly. And just clearly having this very binary view of, like, hydrogen and solar, good, coal, bad, has kind of dominated the political discourse from my perspective as someone who did not have this sort of technical appreciation of the difference. And 
is probably something that's like stagnating our progress because you're right. They're going to have to be, and this is not the, even the final one, so many necessary evil trade-offs, like even the pure functional components of the lithium ion batteries that we are going to need to power the electrification of the world. That's not some sort of like candy business. Like there's a lot of kind of inevitable discomforts we're going to have to confront yep. to make this work. Yep, yep. Look, these are these are dirty, messy businesses, rare earths, mm. incredibly important for all of the green kit that you want to do and a lot of defense yeah. stuff also and, you know, huge amounts of acid, sulfuric acid, hydrochloric acid, all of those have to be created and then you've got all this effluent runoff and enormous environmental degradation if you don't do it properly and enormous expense if you do do it properly. Mm. Um, like none of this is easy, none of this is cheap. And, and again, this is why we need people over the next several decades to be in these industries. If we don't have mining engineers to help us get the copper out of if the ground. If Kate's not pitching you on your university degree, you haven't been listening to our last two episodes. <laughs> I want us to to do this, but it's not going to work. Mm. It's not going to work if we spend, like, like activism is not mm. going to save the planet. Mining, yeah. making steel, making electrolyzers, rolling out solar panels, that is what's going to save the planet. Capitalism and economic action is actually what's going to save the planet. Now, activism has played a really important role in kind of prodding us to get us going. Yeah. And activists like Greta Thunberg has a role to play. Created the momentum. Yes, you've got to get mm. that spark going. You've got to make change. But then the actual finding a way to do all the things we love to do without mm. carbon, that's going to require a lot of people devoting their careers yeah. to it. So some of these trade-offs, I think you've probably opened a lot of people's minds, certainly my mind, to the benefits of coal and the benefits metallurgical of coal. mining. Sorry, yes, metallurgical coal and mining generally. But an industry that I think has kind of coasted by on a lot of this conversation around the decarbonisation challenge and certainly gotten itself onto numerous ESG index funds is tech. Oh. I want to know your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, so there are interesting angles there because every time you watch a YouTube video, it's a couple mm. of grams of carbon that goes into the atmosphere because it's not. I mean, it's free to us. We don't pay five cents per video or anything, but there are electrons traveling up and down. There's cloud computing centers that are churning and doing lots of stuff. Now, fortunately, the largest of those companies, right? So Microsoft, Amazon, Alphabet that owns Google, these guys can see that was an asbestos type issue waiting to come. Asbestos, of course, you know, you had a company like James Hardy where they make fiber cement. Turns out it's made from asbestos and all their workers get horrible cancer and die and they have to pay for all of that. And so it's, you know, it's a complete disaster. So even corporate chieftains who, you know, are, are hard driving, don't give a damn about the planet, they care about not having that kind of thing blow up on them. And they could see that they were running. So, you know, all of those tech titans, they run thousands of data centers and they use enormous amounts of power. And so they realized, let's go green. 
let's neutralize that before it even becomes a public issue. You don't want to have YouTube boycotted because of the carbon associated with the farms. So they're actually doing some amazing stuff. Now, Microsoft founded by Bill Gates. Bill Gates has, you know, become a philanthropist with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and they are seeding tons of really interesting new climate technology. And I'm sure partly from that influence, Microsoft have now said they will go carbon neutral, but not carbon neutral this year, but carbon neutral through the entirety of their corporate existence. So they've calculated how much carbon they've emitted since they were founded by Bill back when he was like eating tang out of a jar. And they've committed to getting to zero on that. So they will, they will actually take carbon out of the atmosphere to get to that point. Google are doing different things. So Google are now, they'll put a, a cloud computing center out and to get the power, they're now going to the poor neighborhoods around it and paying to put in solar panels and efficiency, like really responsive meters and thermostats. And then they pay those renters in those neighborhoods to let them, you know, turn off their fridge for a couple of minutes every so often when they need the power. Yeah, and so, and so they're doing some really clever stuff that is trying to do a just transition. So this is another thing that people are now thinking about is it's rich people who have benefited from all the carbon. You know, let's make sure that you get some benefit, that the, the cost of transition doesn't fall on poor people, whether they're in developed countries or in, you know, Africa and Southeast Asia. And so let's have a just transition. And so some of these tech companies, like they're the ones that are getting closest to the trillion dollar mark. You know, they're putting billions and billions of dollars in to decarbonizing their own operations. Now, there are a couple of outliers. AI, so all of the fancy machine learning models that we've all been talking about recently, those are enormous amounts of computing power. And so there's a, a bit of a sleeper issue there of, well, to let you do all these fancy machine learning things, is it really yeah. worth the cost of carbon? And of course, the really egregious one is crypto. So China, to its credit, China realized that a lot of coin farming was happening in regions that had coal-fired power and that it was just yeah. a, a direct conversion, you know, of like take coal, turn it into emissions and Bitcoin. And they realized they didn't want that. So they shut down most of that and kind of shifted it to other places around the world. But mm. there's still, you know, heaps of people that are doing Bitcoin mining using coal-fired power. Now, if we had a carbon price, then that would be priced in and that would, you know, make people think twice about it, but we don't. So yeah. in terms of investing, if you want to make your investment portfolio more sustainable, rethinking your crypto has got to be part of that. I don't think it's something that people think a lot about, but it's inbuilt into the model. Absolutely. So actually, my mum sent me this yesterday. This is the simplest thing, but rethinking the reply all button and rethinking imagery in your signatures. So I'm a lawyer. I work with a lot of external lawyers. Signature blocks have gone from this is who I am to like this ridiculous 10-page text, including graphics and GIFs and all sorts of things. And my mum was saying the amount of carbon that's generated just from people storing that signature and then it being stored 400 times when someone hits reply all and messages all these people and all these different servers it's stored on. Just cutting down your email signature has like a significant amount, you know, benefit to carbon emissions because it's less data storage. And I thought that was so simple. So I got rid of all the crap in my, excuse my French, in my email signature. But we talked last episode and this episode 
about how this conversation has shifted over time. And I think for Australian investors out there, if they want to continue to help influence this conversation, what's your call to action to them? Well, I think it still has to be how you vote. That's got to be kind Mm. of job one. And fortunately, you know, we have mandatory voting here. We don't have gerrymandering and things. So our situation is not as polarised and so it's not as dramatic. But still, you know, that that is fundamental. That's job one. Mm-hmm. Then if you, you know, think about personal actions, we talked about that last time, of basic things you can do. But then in terms of your portfolio, you've got to send a signal that you care about this. And so almost all of the super funds now will have a choice of different strategies and when you first got your first superannuation account, when you worked at McDonald's, it will have put you into, oh, you yeah. know, most people get their job, right? So most people, mm. are, you know, start at Coles, Woolies or McDonald's. And so, they, you know, we'll start out as REST members. And REST is a fantastic, a very forward thinking one. So that's, that is itself not a bad place to be. But, you know, they, you can go on and you can select. You'll be put into kind of a basic balanced one that is appropriate for someone in accumulation. But you can go in there now and you can select various options and they all now have sustainable options. Now, if you wanna, so just simplest terms, choose a sustainable one because that will evolve with time, but it sends a signal to them that you care about that. Now, if you're more active than that, then you you can delve into what approach to sustainability they take because there's a kind of knee jerk, oh, I wanna make, my options sustainable and certainly in our industry the more that customers have said oh i care about the green option everyone goes quick quick let's do a green option and the simplest and easiest way to do a green option is to cut out all your fossil fuel you know like energy stocks oil and gas okay yep that kind of makes sense but then the next thing is to cut out all your miners so look that doesn't make sense for all the things we've talked about cutting out your thermal coal miners absolutely makes sense for god's sake do that And even cutting out energy providers cuts out your Santos, right? So Santos to do this, and I'm not, you know, I'm just using it as an example, um, but they want to do this direct air capture. They're going to need funds to do it. If their share price is really low, it's going to be hard for them to fund it. If their share price is higher, then it's going to be easier for them to raise the capital they need. So the thing you've got to think of in terms of greening your portfolio is you really got to think through and say, are the changes that are proposed going to give me a green portfolio where I go, look, there's absolutely no carbon emissions associated with these stocks in my portfolio. They're so super clean. Or are they going to give us a green world? Because it's the green world we care about. We need a decarbonized world. And so we're going to need the miners in there. We're going to need the Santoses. And and this is where, you know, like I, I was an active portfolio manager. ETFs, you know, passive, super low cost, those can be a great option for many people. But one of the reasons increasingly that you would choose an active manager is because an active manager will take a more thoughtful approach to how they approach this question and they will help to kind of separate out, well, there's an oil and gas company that is just all about the dirty oil and gas profits. We don't need to own them. But here's a company that really is swinging their business model to make it sustainable for the future. Let's give them a leg up. Let's help them. And so, you know, there, there are now there's like 50 shades of green out there. So, you know, there's different ones. And I really, you know, it's, it's really helpful if you're out there thinking that ultimate test is this portfolio going to help put that $100 trillion to work to solve the problem? Or does it just get the problem off my portfolio and make it someone else's problem? I love that provocation. We can all do our little bit 
to get us closer to the $100 million decarbonisation challenge. Yep. I think that's a really great objective for your investment, not only to get returns, but to get a decarbonised world. Yeah, that's a really beautiful sentiment. And I think one that might help people think about digging underneath some of the greenwashing or just sort of greenness that exists in the financial world and figuring out whether it actually aligns to their objectives around potentially getting the world greener. Kate, thank you so much for joining us on Big Swinging Stocks. Always love talking about this with you. And oddly, I have to say, personally, this always leaves me feeling a little bit more optimistic about the future and the fact that while the challenge is there and it's big, it's not insurmountable when people really band together to help fix it. So thank you. Great. Great. My work is done. And to our listeners, thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of Big Swinging Stocks. Make sure to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so you don't miss part two of this series on investing for climate action. See you next week. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by SelfWealth and operates under AFSL number 421789 as general advice only. Because we can't take into account your personal objectives or financial situation, you should seek independent professional financial advice before making any investment decision. For more information and our financial disclosure statement, check the show notes.